Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. So I should call you Oz Clark. That's pronunciation. Um, uh, Oz Clark is the way to pronounce it. Uh, pronounce it. Let's start by pronouncing it. Oz Clark <laughs> is my name, and I'm glad to be here. But originally it was Robin, though. Uh, Robert, uh, Robert Owen. They call me Oz because uh, I play cricket like an Australian. What um, does that mean exactly? Well, it means that if someone bowls at your head and tries to kill you, you whack him over the uh, literally. You you whack him over the third baseline. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, it's it's basically taking a baseball, a, a sort of a slugger's approach to to cricket because cricket normally you play with a straight bat. And I used to play softball, and I was I used to hit loads of home runs over first base. Uh, and everyone said, "How do you hit that?" And because I I thought of thought of it as trying to hit a cricket ball, which you have your elbow up in the air for your cricket ball, and and the bat is is vertical to the ground, exact opposite of baseball. But of course, when, when someone is bowling at your head and you're a 12-year-old and half the rest of the members of your team are in hospital already because with, with blood flowing off their faces, because I was at a choir school. And you can imagine, we, you know, we spend half our time wandering around in cassocks and surpluses. You can imagine the local boys had no respect for us. And, and my dad always said to me, he said, look, people bully you, people throw things at you and things. Deal with them, you know. You look them in the eye and you whack it back. And he said, the way to do it with cricket is you, the ball comes at your head, watch the ball, take the bat up like that, like a baseball player, and whack it, but always watch it. And then as soon as it's gone to the boundary, look at the bowler again. He'll do it again. You whack it again and you tell him, as long as you bowl at my head, you're going over the boundary ropes every single time you do it. And I'm... I. Sometimes I would go in and we would, as I said, half the team were lying on the floor covered in blood. And, and I would knock 24 runs, which is like, you know, six home runs off a, off a single single over. And I'd say, you, you know, the more you do this to me, I'm not going to stop. I'm going to whack you over the boundary. Then, of course, they'd bowl a, a full one at my feet and I'd miss it and I'd be out. But by that time, we'd got 30 runs on the board. So I, I began to, you know, 12, 13 years old, the it's there aren't many things you do which when when you get to the showers as, as a 13 year old boy and you remember them with pleasure but this was one and they started calling me Aussie because that's how the Australians used to bat against the English whenever the English tried to intimidate them they whacked them straight over third base that's what I used to do at age 12 that's why I got called Aussie you grew up in Canterbury England yeah 
Fantastic place to grow up. I grew up in Canterbury, which is a wonderful cathedral city. Well, I grew up near Canterbury um, because I always think, am I a country boy? I'm a city boy. I'm a country boy. Uh, I have to live in London. Media stuff means that you sort of have to be in the city. But if my heart is still in the country and I still sometimes creep out of London when no one's looking, I just go down to the marshes and the meadows and the forests that I grew up in and I think of it as an idyllic childhood. People, I was talking to someone only this week and, and they were saying, I can't believe that you're saying that that your childhood is nothing but happiness. Because I was talking about watching the November weather and the way the gloaming, you know, when the sun's gone on a clear day, but the light is still in the sky. And I was just saying, all my memories take me back to the warmth and security of childhood and the fact that on days like this I'd be heading home and I'd be cold and there'd be a steak and kidney pie or crumpets and butter and the fire would be uh, burning, the, the fresh logs brought in and everything would just gather around you in security. And this guy, he said, I can't believe you're saying this. You mean, that you, where's all the pain in your childhood? I said, I, I can't think of any. I, I can think of little bits of things that went wrong, but not pain. And that was the, the childhood I brought up with. Up out in the country, I was a choir boy at Canterbury Cathedral. I used to cycle in um, to the cathedral from our little village out on on a, on a hill near the marshes, about four miles out. But my playground was the marshes. My playground was the meadows. My playground was an old quarry. Um, I realized looking back, I, I didn't seem to have very many friends um, away from school. Were at school, I had friends. Any Irish people? You're Irish. I'm Irish, but we we're a, you, you might call us sort of. I'm technically first generation English because uh, my father was Protestant, my mother was Catholic. So they and, had to leave town then. Well, England is a very tolerant place. Uh, it's it's easy to forget. It's very easy to be to be critical of the English and to be rude about the English, but it's a very tolerant place. And and basically, if you muck in. The English say, pleased to have you. I, I'm sure the States is pretty similar. If you muck in, people are happy to have you here. But if you don't muck in, if you take the piss all the time, then people get fed up. Uh, and my parents, you know, they said, right. I mean, my mum reckoned it took her 20 years probably to get accepted in England. But she became accepted and much loved because she just mucked in. Uh, and I, I was a, a kid... I didn't even realize how important to me it was to be Irish until I was a little bit older when I started going back to Ireland and seeing my family there, when they would start talking to us. Because there was a time when they wouldn't talk to us. Um, but when they started talking to us again, when they stopped planning to kidnap my mother and force her to her knees and demand that she, you know, she rejects the heretic and all that kind of stuff, when they gave up all that nonsense, I realized that being Irish is absolutely fantastic. And being English is fantastic too. And Canterbury, in a funny way, because I was brought up as a Catholic until I was eight. And Canterbury, of course, is the is the centre of the Episcopal faith, the Church of England faith. So there was an absolute uproar. Um, I went to to I went to a girls' convent. And I mean, we went down to Kent. My dad was a doctor in the coal mines. He was a a great chess physician. He ended up as a professor of medicine on on this side of the Atlantic. Uh, <laughs> we went down and, and, and um, he said, okay, find Robert, that's my name, Robert, a, a school. And, and mummy uh, said one day when he got back from him, I, f I found a school for Robert. And daddy said, oh, that's great. And he said, where is it? He said, she said, it's St. Anne's Convent. And my dad said, hang on, that's a girl's school. She said, yes, 
but it's a Catholic girls' school. So I was sent to a girls' school because it was Catholic. Until I was eight years old, when I got a place to sing as a choir boy in Canterbury Cathedral, of course, this is the centre of the devil for the Catholics. And I turned up in, in, in uh, one morning for school and said, bye-bye, mummy, and all blah, blah, blah. And, and Sister Bernardo, I remember, Sister Banana, I called her typically, Sister Bernardo took me roughly by the back of the thing and plonked me down at the front of the chapel for prayers and turned me around from the, the altar saying, you can't look at the altar. And I, I stood there and said, of course, hundreds of girls and me and me going, hello, hello. Uh, and I, uh, Father McCarthy got up in the pulpit and said, now we are here today to pray for the soul of a boy who is going to the, the, the center of perdition, who will be lost to the devil forever and who'll be in a state of eternal damnation. And I was saying, that's me. That's great, isn't it? That's me. And, uh, and they all prayed for my soul. And I was thinking, gosh, you know, all the girls are looking at me. I'm happy as can be. And I got home after that afternoon and my mom said, oh, well, now, now, what was school like? And I said, oh, lovely, mummy. Um, you know, they prayed for my soul. Ah, did they? Uh, because I'm going to the, the center of damnation and, and I'm going to be in the devil's pocket for the rest. And she said, what? He said, I'm, yes, I'm going to perdition. I'm going, I'm going to be the devil's pawn. She said, what? She, I, she said, did that what they said to you? I said, yes, I'm, go I'm going to internal damnation with a smile on my face. And my mother, I remember ringing up Father McCarthy, and I presume the conversation went something like, Father McCarthy, is this true? What have you been saying to my son? And Father McCarthy presumably said, you're absolutely right. Well, you he's going to the center of the Anglican church. It's a disgrace. And my mum said, you priests ruined my generation. I will not let you ruin my children's generation. I renounce you and your church as of now. And the next day, we all became Anglicans. And they all came up to the house, and they banged on the door. My mother wouldn't let them in. She said, out, out. Next day, we all became Anglicans. So I'm a Catholic, I'm an Anglican, I'm whatever, really. I, I, find, I find faith is a fascinating thing. I couldn't profess having faith. But I've got a lot of spiritual awareness, which periodically means a lot to me, and then sometimes it means nothing. And sometimes when I want to have some faith, I can't find it. And sometimes when I think organized religion will work, it doesn't. Uh, but often what I do do is just go, I love churches, and I, you know, uh, if I'm allowed into them, synagogues and mosques and all the rest, and I do quite often. I mean, I was in San Francisco a couple of days ago, and I just went to the Grace Cathedral just Great. for half an hour. The maze just, outside yeah. is something I really enjoy. And, you know, if, if I was, um, you know, midtown tomorrow, I could spend 10 minutes in, in the cathedral there. Uh, you know, Marilyn Monroe got married at Grace Cathedral. No, I didn't. Yeah. For the famous ball player, Joe DiMaggio. Ah, now we're talking. Not someone you should marry. Don't marry a great ball player, but uh, I, as an English-Irish cricket player, I know about him. So you went to school at Oxford College at Pembroke. Yeah. What was that like? Absolutely fantastic. Being being at uh, Oxford, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I left sort of secondary school. Um, uh, I we had a, there was a family business, dry cleaning business, uh, and they wanted me to join that. And I just and they they came. Well, actually, it was when I was already at Oxford, and it was a, it was in the Saturday of what's called Eights Week, and this is the the week when all the rowing races are on the river. Uh, and a Saturday of eights week, they suddenly said, your, your uncles and people have all turned up 
I thought, oh God, this is bad news. And they sat me down and said, right, we've chosen you as a new generation to come into a, a company called Sketchly Dry Cleaning, which is a massive dry cleaning company. And my, they tried to get my father into it after the Second World War, but he fought the war in Burma uh, and in India. And he said he'd seen such terrible things that he was going to be a doctor and uh, and he had to try and do something to to make the world a better place and spent a lot of his life in Laos and Cambodia and Thailand doing exactly that. But they said, you know, we've discovered this amazing thing. We've been to America and we've seen, they have shops in America on street corners with a machine in it, which you take your clothes in in the morning and, and it cleans the clothes. And at the end of the day, you can take your clothes away and they're clean. <laughs> so this is the most amazing thing. Well, of course it was. And they said, we're going to establish one on every street corner in England and we're all going to be millionaires. And, and indeed they were. But they, and my dad said, I can't do it. My, I can't do it. And they said, you ungrateful cur, you'll never have a penny from us. And we never were. We were always the poor cousins. And I, they came up to see me and said, okay, you're, they, they mapped out the next 10 or 12 years of my life, mostly spent in, in, in factory floors and industrial towns in some of the less attractive parts of England. And I just thought, this is terrible. Um, um, I rang my dad. He said, Daddy, what am I supposed to do? And he said, it's your life. I'll support you in whatever you do. Just remember, they said the same to me. And I said no. And I've never regretted it for a minute. And he said, by the way, one thing, um, it, they'll probably call you an ungrateful cur uh, and say you'll never have a penny from us. Right. And I said, thank you, Daddy. And I went back and said, I'm sorry, Jeffrey, or Uncle Jeffrey. I can't do it. And he went, you ungrateful cur. And I said, you'll never have a penny from us. And he said, you rude boy. What do you mean? He said, you've been talking to your father. And I said, yes. He said, damn, damn, damn. He said, that's the reason we want you in this bloody business. He said, if we can't keep this as a family business, he said, the Bugginses will take over. It's sort of private business. You know, I remember five or 10 years later looking at it had all gone public and they lost about 40 million pounds. And I found myself thinking, God, that could have been me in there. But that was the Saturday of eights week. I was president of my college. I just won my oars. When you win four races in a single day, it happens very rarely. If you win four races in a single day, you get given the oar from your boat. And we won five races. Well, this hadn't happened since the Second World War in my college. We won five races, so we all got given our oars. And it was the college ball that night. Uh, it was, let's say, it was about to be an important moment in a young man's life. Um, all of this was happening. And First then glass said, of wine, was it? Uh, it certainly it had nothing to do with the glass of wine, although I'm sure that that gave me a bit more confidence when I needed it. And then they tried to make me be a dry cleaner. And I said no. And what Oxford did do was show me what I didn't want to be. I didn't want to be a corporate person. I didn't want to be a lawyer like my mum wanted me. I didn't want to be a dry cleaner. And then trying to work out, okay, I've now worked out the things I don't want to do. What do I want to do? Well, I'd always, I remember at the age of eight, I'd said to my dad, I never wanted to retire. And he'd said, well, you'd better never have a job then. And I said, all right, I won't ever have a job. And I must admit, I don't think I ever have. Um, I work hard. Um, but I've never had a job. Got a quite a bit done, I think, over the <laughs> life. Got quite a bit done. In between my leisure moments, I get quite a bit done. But it, I ended up suddenly realizing I was always a good singer. And um, I had joined the, the Wine Society in trying to get a girlfriend, Levy. I mean, you know, I just, I went from a single sex, a, a girl's school to start with. Hey, when I was seven years old, I had so much attention from 16-year-old girls. When I was 16, they didn't even want to be on the same street as I was on. 
And I went up to university, still having not having managed to get a girlfriend, although I was engaged when I was four, briefly, but only for about a couple of hours. Well, I said to Sarah Prestige, lovely girl, will you marry me? Yes. And I said, thank you very much. And I said, I think I should have a term at school first. And she said, a good idea. So I had my term at school. I completely forgot that I was engaged to be married by the age of five. Anyway, so I got away with that. Quite important to get away with a few broken hearts. The fiancés tend to leave when you're on the road to perdition, I've found. You know. Well, I, I think the point is the road to perdition is scattered with broken hearts. But up at, at university, I, I joined the Wine Society there, just thinking, because I went up with, with almost no money, but I'd read too much Evelyn War, I'd read too much Max Beerbohm. I wanted to have the life of the gilded youth with no money to have it. And I was flicking through the university handbook, and I discovered this university wine club which was um, two pounds a term because it was subsidized. Two pounds a term, you know, $3, $3.50 a term. You got four tastings. That's less than a dollar a tasting. Uh, and you could take a guest. And I, I didn't think, oh, how interesting. I can take my friend Charles and we'll learn about wine together. I just thought, a date, a date for a dollar. <laughs> I just thought, this is it. I can be soigné and sophisticated and elegant and learn about wine. Women will find me irresistible. So your family <laughs> didn't drink wine when you were growing no, up? No, they didn't. My dad didn't drink wine. My mum, a couple of bottles a year, something like that. You know, I think you know, life was, was quite hard, and my dad was down the coal mines half the time trying to cure people. Um, he, would, he might come back and have a, you know, a bottle of pale ale, but probably wouldn't drink at all most of the time, and certainly not wine. It wasn't, wasn't part of our life. So going up to university, I suddenly did actually work, learn about wine. Well, I mean, my first date, I took, well, I remember, the, I remember the tasting very well because her name was Francesca. She had green hair. She had green sequins all over her face. She had green, a tiny green top, a very short green uh, leather dress. And the rest of her, which was most of her, was covered in green body paint. It was a vino verde tasting. Then. Well, I wish it had been. I might have got away with it. Uh, but it was, it was a Bordeaux tasting. And I walked in. I was in my best T-shirt and jeans. Everybody else was in pinstripe suits. And we sat at the back. And she was obviously thinking, I am never going to talk to this boy again, nor did she. Uh, I, t I, had, I took four different girls in my first term to four different wine tastings. None of them gave me a second date. They, were, they absolutely hated it. But I suddenly picked up on flavor. It was a Bordeaux tasting. I was really lucky. Then the last wine, I still remember it, they'd, they'd put in an old wine to give us, our students, a sort of bon bouche and saying, this is what you can look forward to. It was a 1962 Leoville Barton. Nice. Mature, Irish St. family, Julian, Irish. That was also important, and to this day, I can remember the shock and excitement of getting a glass of something which was so dry, and yet so thrillingly perfumed. I mean, that black currant fruit that 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 those lovely old St. Julians and Bordeaux have it. It, it was so seemed to be so full of flavour, and yet so completely lacking in sugar as though sort of a dragon had come along and sucked all the sugar out of it but left all the flavor there and then there was this thing so someone had been rattling it with 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 cigar boxes and uh, and and pencil shavings and and cedar wood and all these things and i was just sitting there in the back of the back of this room francesca buggered off saying this is the worst day of my life i was just thinking something is changing in my life around here flavor flavor wine does this wow and Although it did my social life no good, it got me involved in flavor. And, of course, later on as I was trying to think, what on earth am I to do with my life? Well, Or hanging out with dragons. 
Like, or hanging out with dragons. There were, there were enough of them there were, there were sucking, <laughs> sucking the money out of my back pocket. That's, that's what they did. But I was offered several jobs as wine because we had a in- university wine tasting team, which I got into and then you led for a while. Yeah. yeah, I led that for a year or two. We had a, a, nas- an interna- no, a national wine tasting championship, which I managed to come second in as a student. And they all just said, you can't do that. I remember we, the, the, the finals, to get to the final, <laughs> was, there was me, um, and uh, the person I'd beat was actually the, the director general of the BBC, and the person behind him was the home secretary of the, of, the, of the government of the day. You know, all these, and then there was me, a little student, doing my stuff. And they sort of said, you, you can't be old enough. How can you know about wine? And I thought, that is exactly the, the reason I'm not going to go into the wine trade. Because you look at me and say, you're a young squit. You can't know. And I found myself thinking, of course I can know stuff. I can learn it. And I don't have to, uh, you know, don't have to spend years poring over this. I'm keen. I'm enthusiastic. I want to learn. I love flavor. Give me the chance to learn. And I looked at the wine trade of that time and I thought, it's not going to be the place for me. But I had finally got a girlfriend by then. Very important. And so I, because of her, she was an actress. And I realized, of course, don't. Don't try and get a girlfriend by being a wine person. Get a girlfriend by tr- trying to be an actor. And so I managed to get a part in the in the Oxford Review, which was the sort of the Oxford and Cambridge used to have these great reviews. And we went to the Edinburgh Festival, and I fell madly in love with this wonderful girl. Uh, and so I finally had a girlfriend. I also realised I was good on the stage, and I thought I can't believe this. I might be able to be an actor. And instead of thinking, oh, God, am I going to have to be a lawyer? Oh, God, am I going to have to be a dry cleaner? I thought, work really hard at this. Try and do good roles. Uh, listen, think, work at it, and you'll be- you can become an actor. And a couple of years later, I was able, at the end of playing Toby Belch, my last show at Oxford was Sir Toby Belch in, in Twelfth Night. And I got jobs from the National Theatre, the Royal Shakespeare Company. I got two agents. And it was on my birthday. It was the most wonderful day. You just think, how many wonderful days are there in your life? Well, that was one of them. Illyria was down by the lake in Worcester College Gardens, and I was playing Sir Toby Belch in this my last, last moments in the place that had given me more pleasure than anywhere else in the world. I was saying goodbye, and I was moving on in a magic, dreamy, classless, ageless, irresponsible way to become an actor. And I moved seamlessly from student life into supposedly adult life. I mean, not much adult about being a young actor. But that, that was what I did for quite a few years. I became an actor. Then I became a singer. I got, I got, a, I, I got an opera scholarship, uh, and I became a singer. And I did that for a few years. And I, I did quite a lot of big stuff in the West End. I did things like I played Sweeney Todd, for instance, you know. There was a barber and his friend, and she was beautiful. You know, that wonderful song time. I played Sweeney Todd in that. Um, a lot of singing in that role. Oh, that is a serious thing. Uh, I don't know how anybody can do that eight times a week. But while you were doing that role, you were also doing some wine writing. Yes, I was. Bizarrely, and leading off from the, the university wine tasting team, uh, they decided to set up an English wine tasting team. And a friend of mine rang me up and said, you've got to try and get into this wine tasting team. I was playing Dracula in Sheffield at the time. I had to get some time off from rehearsal to go for a wine tasting in London. And you can imagine the director's general view on that. But he gave me an afternoon off. I went down there, got into the team. You kept finding blood in the tasting notes? Uh, yes, I, d- I did. Sort of, yes, and ox blood and, I, I, you know, all this eyes in, all this stuff. I found it. And bull's blood. Every wine I put down was Hungarian. But... Uh, 
And I got into the team, and and then we started tasting against France was the first one. We went to France to taste against the French in a massive hall in Paris, and they had all the television crews and everything, all there just to basically show the complete humiliation of the English. And we beat them. And Le Figaro newspaper, there's only two times that it has framed its front page in black since the Second World War. One was when President de Gaulle died, and the other time was when the English wine-tasting team came to Paris and beat the French. The Waterloo moment in the wine trade. I don't think Waterloo had anything on us. (laughs) Waterloo, that's just a battle. This was an absolute massacre. And and it was fantastic because we came up, and you can imagine the English newspapers loved it. We were front page news, uh, and of course, since I was an actor, I was I was singing Harrison Burtwistle music at the National Theatre at the time. They said, "Hey, the actor, get get photographs of the actor." So there I was dressed as a Welsh druid with a Welsh harp in one hand and a a, a big glass of champagne in the other, and I was therefore they. I was there. And the next time we did Germany next, I think, and I was playing Sweeney Todd at Drury Lane. So there I was next time with my cutthroat razors and my strange hair and a glass of champagne saying we'd beaten the Germans. And then I think it was the Italians or someone. I was doing a a wonderful show called The Mitford Girls about the six Mitford Girls. I was the only man in the show. Can you imagine what a good show that was? I was there as them. And the next one, was maybe in the Americans next, I was playing General Perron and Evita. And there I was, we won again. Uh, and I, they kept saying, get me the actor who knows about wine. So I was always the lucky one with my picture in the papers. So when they started a new um, new television show called BBC Food and Drink, and they said, I wasn't in the original BBC Food and Drink. Which and was a long-running show. It was, oh, ran for 15, 16 years, something like that. Uh, but they had a guy in to do the wine, and they said, okay, you're going to have to do a blind wine tasting in front of an audience live. And as you can imagine, about 24 hours before the show, he developed a life-threatening disease, uh, which he was miraculously cured of about 36 hours later. He wouldn't, he couldn't do it, wouldn't do it. And the producer just said, okay, we need this. This is an important segment. Get me that actor who knows about wine. Didn't know what my name was or anything, but he knew there was an actor who knew about wine. And I got this message at the stage door saying, can you can you uh, perform tomorrow in a studio? And I thought, it was a Sunday shoot. I thought, yes, I'm free. I can do this. And I went down to the, this um, to do this uh, shoot. And the guy said, you've got a blind taste in public in front of an audience. And I thought, I had a bit of a cold. I thought, I'm not going to massively enjoy this. I, I said, hang on. Do the audience know what the, the wine is? He said, they'll know. They've got a great big board up, but you won't be able to see the board. And I thought, that's, that's okay, I can do this. I'll play it like pantomime. And I walked on, I looked at this glass of wine, very, very pale, almost sort of green in its paleness. And I thought, there's nothing like that uh, in, in the normal run of wine. I had recently, three or four months before, tasted my first New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. Montana 1983 Sauvignon Blanc. One of the most, one of the most exciting wine-tasting moments I've ever had was when I first tasted that. The world of wine was never going to be the same again. And I saw that. I thought, bloody hell, it's, it's so green. It, it can't be French. It can't be Italian or Spanish. It might be that bloody New Zealand wine. And, uh, and then... Um, maybe Francesca was kind of channeling you. <laughs> yes, through, maybe that's it. Maybe it was the, the spirit of the green sequins glittering in the wine. Um, but I thought, and I smelt it, and I could get a bit of a smell, and I thought, bloody hell, it's that amazing capsicum and lime zest and green apple thing that we've just we've just tasted, you know, a few months before. Uh, and I started saying, you know, it's obviously from somewhere cool, look at the colour, and they, a little little titter in the audience. I said, you know, lots of cool places in Europe, nothing. 
I said, but, you know, the Southern Hemisphere's got one or two cool places as well. Little titter. I kept thinking, it's New Zealand, it's New Zealand. So I said, Australia, a tiny pause, is quite warm. Um, South Africa is quite warm, nothing. And I then went, uh, New Zealand, little titter. I said, is a bit cooler. I think this is New Zealand, it's a New Zealand one. And everyone went, like this fantastic applause. And eventually I went, so, what kind of grape? Chardonnay, let me think. What about Chardonnay? Nothing. Mm, doesn't seem to be Chardonnay to me. Riesling is quite a cool grape. Nothing, but it's not Riesling. Now, Sauvignon Blanc, little titter. You think, I, you think it might be a Sauvignon Blanc. And the massive applause. And eventually I said, you know, I think this wine is Montana in 1983, Sauvignon Blanc from uh, the Marlborough region of New Zealand, um, uh, made by a bloke with a moustache and, and, and big ears, uh, and it's on sale in the following supermarkets for £3.99 a bottle. And the audience absolutely erupted because that's, that's exactly what it said on their board. And I came off at the end of it and the, and the producer said, I never knew that we could make wine tasting into, into showbiz. He said, do you want to come and be a regular on the show from next year? Because you read and interacted with the audience. Yeah, because I just read the audience reaction as if I was doing pantomime in front of hundreds of kids in, in the Christmas period. And, and I, I, so he said, come and be a regular on the show. And he said, oh, one thing, by the way, do you realize you forgot to taste the wine? Oh, really? I forgot to taste the wine. <laughs> because I was so involved in playing the audience, I forgot to taste the wine. And they'd chosen a New Zealand wine, thinking, he'll never get this. And of course, that in those days, when they were so new, those wines, that was exactly the kind you would get. If you gave me a, a typical bottle of French wine or a typical bottle of Italian wine, I might have got absolutely nowhere. But they were trying to be smart, and they did exactly the right thing to make it as easy as possible. So what era was that? What decade? 80s, somewhere in the middle 80s, something like that. And you became a regular on the show. Yeah, we did then. Uh, I did probably 15 years of BBC Food and Drink, and we we set out to democratize the world of wine. Because Julie Gould and the batty blonde that I used to do my shows with. You were a team, the wine team. We were a wine team, yeah. yeah. We were, we were. I mean, the the gossip column, well, not the gossip column so much. I mean, had there been social media in those days, it would have been absolutely awash with are they, aren't they, do they, don't they, do will they, won't they. You do stare at her during the segments. I mean, <laughs> it seems like it. I, I can't tell if you're looking at the wine or her, but. Um, on the whole, in the segment, I would be looking at her more than I. She, she wore very little a lot of the time, and was all the better for it well she wore a lot of evening gowns and you tended to wear a t-shirt which i thought was unusual given the show t-shirt and an evening gown i mean if you're trying to say we really are different people i could have worn the evening gown I mean, <laughs> and maybe i should have worn the evening gown but you had a kind of a, a down-home familiarity about you uh, with me and judy golden just your style yeah. on the show yeah I think. We, we, uh, the point was we we thought that the british population was being completely excluded from wine and that the vast majority who weren't in the upper middle class and didn't wear, you know, pinstripe suits and comb their hair on the left-hand side of their head were not were being told wine's not for you, not for the likes of you. And we just thought this isn't fair. Uh, it, people don't say that in Italy. They don't say it in Spain. They don't say it in France. Why are they saying it in England? It's just it was a real class thing. And Julie and I, both from perfectly nice middle class backgrounds, just thought this isn't fair. And and we thought there was a massive audience out there for two people using, uh, you know, madness and using uh, over-the-top language and, and T-shirts and, 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 and whatever she happens to be wearing, uh, if she is, to make 
a statement about wine is fun. Come on in, join us. Don't worry if you can't pronounce the label. We probably can't either. All you need to do tomorrow morning is go and say, I want Oz's wine or I want Jilly's wine. And they'll know what you mean. And that's what used to happen. And people, people would buy the wine. Uh, they the would sell out within four to six hours. Every single wine that we had over that 10 to 15 year period will be sold out by lunchtime the next day. Were you starting to see a generational change amongst British wine drinkers? We were the generational change, I think. I think the generational ch- I think they were desperately looking for heroes and we wanted to be their heroes. Uh, and I think that we then needed heroes to work with and that's where the new world came in. Australia and New Zealand being two of the most important players there. Those wines were starting to come in for the first time. They were just time. starting to come in and of course they were coming in under varietal names. Um, all the stuff that was in the market before was called Puy Blanc Fumé, whatever that is. You know, it's uh, called Valpolicella um, Reserva, whatever that is. All this, all these foreign names, quite long. And an audience just saying, okay, well, I'll just get the white or the red. Uh, English are terrible at, at foreign languages. Uh, and they felt a real sense of social unease at making a fool of themselves in public. And wine was one of the things that above all, all the cartoons used to go on about how foolish you would look if you got wine wrong and if you got wine paired with the wrong thing and all this kind of stuff. In other words, it was just, it was just being corrosive. And Australia and New Zealand, California was there as well, but it, California faded in, in the face of Australia and New Zealand a bit. Um, Maybe uh, South Africa. South Africa then began, began to come important. And then Chile. And and then eventually places like southern France and Spain and Italy started using the varietal approach. Now, the varietal approach was so important because it just said, you know, my name's Smith, the grape's called Chardonnay, and it comes from Australia. And you say, what is Chardonnay? I'll say it again, Chardonnay. Have you got that? Chardonnay. How many times do I have to say it? Chardonnay. I'll say it again, Chardonnay. So eventually, someone in a mill town in the north of England says, Chardonnay, 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 right? Chardonnay. I wonder what that is. And I'll say, oh, it's the golden one. You know that? There's a, this is a wine full of lovely flavors of honey and pineapples and, and, and roasted nuts. And they say, oh, nonsense, you fatted. Nothing tastes like that. I'd say, go and try it. Just go down to your local supermarket. Ask for Oz's wine. See what you think. And then the, the, the Jilly would come up with some, I don't know, let's say a New Zealand wine, a, a Sauvignon Blanc. It's called Sauvignon, Sauvignon. And it would t- take them a while to get it. Sauvignon's three syllables. That's a lot of syllables. Chardonnay's three syllables. That's a lot of syllables. That's one of the reasons why Merlot was so popular in red wine. It's only two syllables. It's soft and it's two syllables. But you talk to these people and say, you know, don't worry about what village it comes from. Don't worry about the name of the, the, the bloke. It's all in French and it's got a grave and acute accents all over the place. Don't worry about any of that. The name, his name's Smith or Jones. Uh, New Zealand, you know where New Zealand is. It's that place that the rugby players come from. Uh, and they, you know, they grow sheep there and they speak English. It's fine. Go and get the green wine, the sharp one, the, the, you know, the, the, the Chardonnay. That's the Australian one. That's golden and soft. The Sauvignon, that's the New Zealand one. It's sharp and fresh and tangy. Go and try them. Jilly's wine in that supermarket, Oz's wine in that supermarket. And and it worked. People really, really got it. But if we'd been saying, look, why don't you go and try the Puy Fui C'est Premier Cru uh, as against the Puy Blanc Fumé, this, that, the other, nobody would have noticed it. And also, instead of us being able to say, it stinks of lime zest and asparagus or something, instead of, instead of us saying, well, it's got a quite delicate um, slight note of mayflower and a, a little bit of, of, of slightly dusty, chalky, this, that. And the audience would have been 
fast asleep before we got through our sentences. But if we just said, God, it's, it's making my teeth rattle. It's so exciting. Go and get it. They went and got it. And we, we just, we, we on the, the traditional British trade absolutely hated what we did. To this day, I think a lot of them resent what we did. And yet we probably kept half of them in business. They weren't reaching the audience that you were reaching. No, they didn't want to. They didn't. Uh, very few people entered the wine trade thinking they'd make much money. Uh, they thought they'd have a nice lifestyle. They'd probably have big lunches three or four days a week. Wouldn't do very much work. Um, just about be able to afford to do, um, you know, buy a pinstripe suit now and then and have a car. Um, but half their lifestyle was actually free drinking. And I found myself thinking, I don't want to do free drinking. I want to earn enough money. I'll buy my own drink. It's like you know, you earn enough money, and I'll buy my own hotel. I'll buy my own trip. Not just wait till you're offered a freebie uh, uh, on the understanding that you then have to say how nice the person's product is and you're stuck because if you don't say how nice the person's product is, you won't get another freebie. We'd spend a lot of time on, on BBC Food and Drink saying that the person's product wasn't nice and don't buy it. You know, we got in a big, big trouble. I was, I've been banned from, from Bordeaux. I've been banned from Champagne twice. I remember there was one time in Champagne when the champagne people had disgracefully put the prices up again and the quality was going through the floor. And I'd done a big thing saying, champagne, who needs it? Saying Napa Valley, um, things like Mum Napa Valley, I was saying, much better wine than Mum Cordon Rouge, buy the Mum Napa Valley. And they got all very uptight. And one of the people in Champagne gave me a letter because the, the young people in these areas always used to keep in touch and say, this is what the older guys are trying to do to you. And this was one, from one of the big um, champagne houses. And it was the boss of the champagne house saying, I think that we should um, keep rising, keep, keep th um, pushing up the price of champagne to make sure that it remains a luxury product, a deluxe product. We must make sure that ordinary people are not able to afford to buy champagne. And I got this letter out 10 days before Christmas. Um, and I said, I've got this letter here from this bloke in charge of this massive great champagne house. And I, I said, I'll tell you what it said. He said, I said, he said, you know, I don't think that, you know, that the ordinary people should be able to buy champagne. Let's make it too expensive for them. And I said, I quite agree. Let's help him. Don't buy champagne. And the sales of champagne, I think, dropped 45% in the next 12 months. There was a massive scandal. Everyone got sacked in champagne and all the rest. But I was just saying, I said, well, then don't behave like such complete twats. Don't behave in such a pig-headed, um, sort of um, elitist way. Um, and don't try and say to the majority of the British audience, we think you're inferior. And, uh, and just because you're a, a, a chap who works at a coal mine or a chap who works at a car shop, you should never be allowed to, to order champagne. It should be something you should aspire to. It should, I, I'm not asking you to make it cheap, but I'm asking you to make it aspirationally possible to get it. So it's the 80s. There's a generation of Britons that have a chance to travel a little bit more than maybe their parents did. So you're telling them about warm, far-flung destinations that have these really kind of interesting fruit profiles in their wines, and they start to follow you and maybe visit those places at the same time. The fact they've been getting abroad and going on holidays abroad was terribly important. Because that was able, we were able to say to people, you know, from a mill town in Yorkshire or from a, you know, a coal mining area in Lancashire, you've been on a holiday to Spain. You had wine for breakfast, for lunch, for tea, for dinner. And half the time it was free. It was just the most natural thing in the world. And it made you happy and it made, you know, it made your eyes light up and it made, it made the, the meal more fun. 
And now you come back to England and say, oh, it's not for the likes of us. No, we can't have it here. And I was saying, why not? You had it when you were on holiday. Why can't you have it back at home? And if you let me show you where the bargains are, which taste good, and you follow me and accept that me and Julie will never let you down, we'll always give you honest advice, we'll never be in the pockets of anybody to, to say uh, stuff that we don't believe in, we can make you into a wine drinker. And there was, you know, enough people had enough money in their pockets at that time to afford to be wine drinkers, but they presumed that it was not something that they should do. And the going abroad, that, that was the thing with the, the advent of, of cheap uh, flights, for instance. Instead of people just going to the local seaside town in, uh, in England, cheap flights meant that they could go to Spain, they could go to southern France or Portugal, have a lovely week or two in the, in the sunshine, come back and have seen the foreign world outside for the first time. And part of that foreign world, which made them happy and which made them feel good about themselves, was a glass of wine. So when they came back to the sort of the miserable foggy murk of Lancashire in a November evening, well, what about going and getting a bottle of wine and opening it up and splashing it down with your, with, your, with your high tea and saying, I remember when we were happy down on the Spanish coast. Remember last summer and what you did in the sea and when we went out on the pedalo and nearly drowned and blah, blah, blah. And are we going to go there next year? Yes. Isn't that fantastic? Only six months' time and we'll be on holiday again. A glass of wine can do all that. A glass of wine can bring back memories. A glass of wine can make people happier. New World wines were coming in without a lot of reputation. They were being offered for not that much money relative to other wines, and they had an accessible food profile. Uh, what was interesting about New World wines is that they were not cheaper than uh, than French and Spanish and Italian wines. They were more expensive. Uh, this is one of the things that the Australians got badly wrong 10 or 12 years ago when they decided to to try and delve into the into the rump end of the market rather than hold on to what they had been very good at holding on to the upper middle end of the market. I mean, at this moment, Australian wine is still second or third most expensive wines in the British market. The most expensive wines in the British market are New Zealand wines. Uh, and whenever they try and discount, I and many others say, don't do it. The audience in England wants to pay a proper price for your advice. Please just keep the quality up. Don't discount. And those Australian wines that came in, those New Zealand wines that came in, the South African wines, the early Chilean wines, they weren't the cheap wines. The cheap wine was the, the gut rot from the south of France. The cheap wine was the gut rot from, from Spain. Or the cheap wine was the sort of litre and a half of Suave or Valpolicella, which had probably never seen anywhere near Suave or Valpolicella in its life that you were getting at a corner shop. That was the cheap stuff. Um, and that's why it seemed that the New World did such a wonderful, wonderful job in, in Britain, and indeed the whole of Northern Europe, because it spread out from Britain, in, firstly into Scandinavia, then to Holland, Belgium, Denmark, Germany, all those places began to learn about wine through the new world because, because the flavors are so simple. They were, uh, in a way, Australia was sunshine in a bottle. And that's uh, probably nice when you're in Britain and it's not sunny. It's not sunny. Uh, if you're sitting in San Diego, it, it may not matter too much. You've got sunshine in a bottle every time you look out the window. But in England, particularly in those days, it's much warmer in England now than it was then. Uh, sunshine in a bottle, as I said, it gives you, it makes you smile. It just lifts your spirits. It starts bringing you back the sense, because the English are addicted to sunshine because they don't get much of it. And things that bring back warmth, 
sunshine, the bright skies, they, they make the English very happy. And Australian wines did that. South African wines, when they started getting their act together, did it. Chilean wines, definitely. Uh, and New Zealand wines for that crisper quality. The, the quality that actually an English person could recognize because just occasionally an English summer's day was the same as a New Zealand summer's day, except in New Zealand they had about 30 of them a month, and in, in England you had about two a year. You've said a few times that New World is an attitude. You used to say it back in the 80s and the 90s. What did you mean by that? Yeah, I think, yes, I think you're right. A new, world is, new World is a state of mind, an attitude. It's not a place. New World can be anywhere um, where a producer sets out to please a consumer. The old European thing used to be, you know, we, we have been making wine for 500 years, and if you don't like it, that's not our problem. That's the German view, anyway. Um, but the um, the New World attitude... Most was sort of, of the Germans I know speak just like that. Do they? Yeah, that's <laughs> what I... Mine, too. These Germans, they get everywhere. Um, but uh, but the, the Australian and the New World one was sort of, you know... Um, what kind of wine would you like? And we'll try and make it. Um, and it's it's served them very well. Um, oh, God, I remember one time I was at the London Wine Trade Fair, I think. I was just still in a theatre, and I was tasting a whole range of boring muscadets, I think, and this hairy, unwashed, sort of oaf in khaki sidled up to me, and he said, hey, you know, give us a moment of your time. And I was sort of thinking, Jesus, go and wash. Uh, you know, please, I'm, I've got a serious muscadet tasting to do here. And, and, and he said, no, come on, don't be the raw prawn with me. And he, he said, I just want to ask a couple of questions. What kind of things do you blokes like? And I remember saying, you know, probably to get rid of him, well, you know, white wines, tasting of pineapples and peaches, that would be lovely, thinking of ripeness. And red wines, a taste of black currants, you know, thinking of what good Bordeaux might be like. I thought that'd be nice. And he said, yeah. And he said, how much do you want to pay on it? And I said, so, some, I don't know, £3.99 a bottle, that's 5 or $6 a bottle. Now, really, I'm terribly busy and I'd be grateful if you'd take your body or odors somewhere else. And he wanted off and I forgot all about it. But a year later, same London Wine Trade Fair, and I absolutely remember this. The bloke sidled up again, and probably wearing the same bloody car key, probably still hadn't washed in another year, still sort of hairy and, and sort of rough and tumble. And he, he showed me this glass, and he said, here, taste this. And I was tasting Beaujolais or something. So again, another hard work tasting, nothing very much which I wanted to taste. I smelt it, and I thought, I went, bloody hell, that smells of peaches and pineapple. And he said, yeah, that's what you said you liked. I said, Jesus, how much is this? He said, £3.99. That's what you said you wanted to pay. I said, I can't believe it. He said, I've got a red here. And I said, bloody hell, that smells of blackcurrant. He said, yeah, that's what you said you liked. And I said, don't tell me it's three ninety nine. He said, yeah, that's what you said you wanted to pay. He must have gone back to Australia, this bloke. He said, oh, I've been up with the bloody palms and they're whinging away like mad. And they say, you know, uh, they want bloody white wines that taste of peaches and uh, red wines that taste of blackcurrants. They want to pay £3.99. So, okay, fellas, let's go out and make it for them. And that's what they did. And they went out into their warm, ripe, vineyards full of grapes in Australia and said, we know how to money make, you know, this blackcurrant thing, we can do that. And the, the bloody peaches stuff, we can, we can do that. And brought these wines over. And for the first time in our lives, someone was turning up, instead of saying, if you don't like it, we can't be bothered. They were saying, we've made this just for you. And it's the price you wanted to pay. As I said, not cheap. There was stuff in the market at $1.99 at the time. But it was actually 
angled towards trying to make the consumer happy. And the new world approach, uh, I mean, it's not always as easy as that because nowadays I wouldn't say everyone has to endlessly try and say, what does the consumer want? We must give it to them. Like you, you end up in danger of getting into the world of Blossom Hill and Ernest and Julio Gallo and all that kind of world then because marketing people will say, we know what the general public want, which is frequently not at all true. Um, but the general point about the new world is the consumer matters. Pleasing the consumer matters. And certainly the way that Julia and I used to look at it on, on food and drink would be, you know, we think we know what you would like, so we're going to try and lead you towards it. Not just saying, what do you like? Because, of course, they didn't know them because they hadn't started out. But if we thought if we can lead them towards it, they will, they will have a much happier drinking time. I still do it with, you know, when I do my stuff with James May and all that kind of stuff, we're still doing the same thing. We're trying to lead a, a large audience towards having a, a nicer time. At the same time that you were finding a lot of an audience in television work, you were also finding it in writing. I, st I got my first column uh, when I was doing Sweeney Todd in Drury Lane. How I managed to do Sweeney Todd and write a column, I don't know. But, you know, you can do, you know, when you're in your 20s, you can do what, anything. You can, you can, nothing's too much. And then I, that was the Sunday Express. And then I got a job writing for the Daily Telegraph, which was probably the best column in the country at the time. And I'd also met a bloke, again, when I was doing General Perron in Evita, I walked out one day in my slap just to go to Cappuccino, bloke walking down in the street in front of me. I just thought, that's Webbo. And Webbo, Adrian Webster, his name is, was a bloke I'd been at university with. And I thought no one else walks along like that. And I said, Webbo? And he turned around, oh, the gracious world. I said, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm managing director of Mitchell Beasley Publishers. And I said, bloody hell. I said, I'm, I, I'm, I'm governing Argentina eight times a week, you know, getting a bit bored of it on Saturday matinees. And he said, well, you're the bloke who knows about wine. He said, do you want to write a wine book? Serendipitous again. Had he not walked down that street, uh, I might not have seen him for another 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. I don't know. The next day we met up and we drank a bottle of, I remember, um, it was an Ausbruch from Rust uh, in Austria, the Neusiedlerse, uh, Burgenland. All these long words, all these long words. And that's exactly the reason why Austrian wines didn't lead the wine revolution in England, because I've already used about five words with about five syllables in them, which would be complete turn off for English people. But we decided we could do a book. I said, we can do a book. So long as I can write a book for, which tells it like it is, because I looked at the wine books that were available at the time, and they were all perfectly nicely written, some of them, but none of them. They all pulled their punches, and they all they all pretended everything was lovely and sweet in the world of wine. And I said, it's clearly not. I'm, you know, I've been a, a young actor around the world. I, know, I, I go from town to town in Britain trying to find decent glasses of wine and find a lot of absolute rubbish out there, often sold virtually illegally from the kind of stuff they put in the bottles. If we can do a book like that, We'll do it. And that was where the, the wine guide started, the pocket wine guide. Uh, it was a big book to start with that, the, that was called the Price Wine Guide. The first half a dozen were great, full of essays. And I was full of my sort of literary folder rolls. I was having a wonderful time saying, look how clever I am. Go, oh, look at the lovely turn of phrase here. And eventually Adrian probably said, well, we're not making any money out of this. Let's make it into a smaller book. And it went down into the pocketbook, which is now. I still try and get literary folder rolls into it, but my editor normally gets rid of most of them before it gets to the print stage. And that, and that was important because I think that doing the television – the criticism, which is perfectly valid, 
was that I had no gravitas. I wasn't after gravitas. I didn't want any gravitas. Gravitas was the way to turn the audience off. But I think that if, if I've got any kind of longevity uh, in the wine world, it's because I actually also really did like wine and really did try to work hard at learning about it and managed to get a, a load of books written um, which even the traditional trade rather grudgingly had to accept were pretty decently researched and thought through. And I think that's allowed me to go on playing around and going on on television screens and larking about and joking and, 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 and still trying to get to this massive audience out there which is never going to read a wine book. But at the same time, a much smaller audience which will read a wine book uh, are able to sort of forgive me for the stuff they disapprove of on the television because they read what I write and think, actually, that's not bad stuff. You chose to do a wine atlas, and there was already a wine atlas in the market, uh, notably from Hugh Johnson. Why that choice? I did a, a wine atlas in an attempt to be complimentary to Hugh's uh, wine atlas. Hugh Johnson's wine atlas um, is a book that I still carry around with me when I go abroad. Um, I think some of his maps are, are not impossible to beat and there are some areas which he does supremely well better than i do i think there's some areas i do better than him are those new world areas i think on the whole in the new world areas i'm i'm i was when i was doing it to start with i was much more empathetic there that's possibly why i did it that way because i did you know books like my new classics book i made a point of putting people like france and italy and spain at the back of the book because I, I said this is the first time ever that a book's been written with which which had France at the back rather than France at the front, and you had people like California and Australia at the front. With the the atlas, we made no attempt to make the maps the same. In fact, they're completely different. They're they are they are sort of I don't know what you call it, but they're sort of contour. They come up off the page. They they're painted with with vineyards and hills and churches and all that kind. They're trying to make you think. I I got it. It's as though in fact quite a lot of them were done from satellite photographs. Um, and painted up satellite photographs to eat, so that we gave the sense of the actual river, how it ran. Like a uh, relief map. Uh, relief, that's probably the word for it, yeah. Um, pity that I didn't know the word for the, the the map I spent all those years doing. But but also, I wrote it in a different way. I tried to, I tried to write it. I, I said, okay, I'm in my car or on my bicycle, and here we go. And I drove people up and down the slopes and talked about them as we went, why they're different, what's happening, where, you know, where, where the wind stops as you come around the corner from one vineyard and, and where the, the sun in the evening just manages to catch those vines for 20 minutes longer than the ones next door, all that kind of way. Saying, come with me and I'm going to put saying, you in the saying, place. come with me. Not and a I, scholastic view. Um, it was, come with me, I'm going to put you in this place rather than taking a more scholastic view. Uh, I think they're both extremely valid views and i regard them as entirely complementary um because i think the idea that there can only be one type of book and one can have a propriety attitude to one type of book is nonsense and you've also found success again in more recent years on tv when you hosted a program with james may of top gear <laughs> yes oh, i've got to see him next week you've you've, you've I must need to go and have a lie down um my fat-headed friend we Go out on the lamb. We're a couple of lads out on the road. We are reveling in being free. Go off in our caravan or in our tent or whatever it in our camper van, 
Uh, and we we try to behave as two lads would do if they were if they were away from their families and all the constraints of their life, having a great time on the road. And purely by chance, I try to educate James as to what's good to drink. And he tries to do everything in his power to avoid learning a damn thing. And preferably to put my life at risk at every possible opportunity. And so through all the fun and the games, we really do tell people about why it matters, you know, where the Zinfandel is grown or why it matters that these vineyards are gravelly and those ones are, are cloggy and clayish down by the river and how to tell the difference or why it matters that this beer is an industrial mess and that beer there is beautifully crafted out of proper ingredients in the way that brewers for a thousand years would have recognized them. Why it matters that this cider is 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 no good and that cider is tremendous. And this this apple is the one and taste it and feel it. That's what you make cider out of, not this one here. All that kind of stuff. And we and people learn because we get massive audiences for it. And it goes all around the world. It's in about 60 countries around the world. And people do learn because it's this whole thing of entertaining people and keeping throwing in bits of information. And they learn. They, if, if I just said, I want to tell you about the difference between Barbera and Nebbiolo, nobody would listen. But if James is actually trying to drown me in a lake in Paso Robles, and I'm lying in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a lake, trying to blind taste with one hand and trying to keep myself afloat with the other hand and literally finding it very difficult to do, and I have to work out the final red, what is it? Is it a Barbera? Is it a Sangiovese? Is it a Nebbiolo? People all remember. People come up to me even now and talk about Barbera, not because they know anything about it, except they know it was the one that nearly had me drowned in the lake in Paso Robles in that California series. Do people come up to you often on the street? I mean, you've done significant acting work on popular television shows and also in the movies. Yeah, they do. Uh, and I'm delighted. I mean, I was, I was standing outside the Grace Cathedral in uh, San Francisco two days ago and a, a chap walked by and said, hey, you're the wine man. And we chat, and I like it. And if people don't like it, they're, then they're in the wrong job. I mean, if I'm doing television and I don't like it, then, I'm in, then I shouldn't be doing television. You like the audience. Like I love the audience. I think, I think the audience is fantastic. I get an enormous pleasure out of, out of pleasing the audience, and I get pain out of not getting it right. Um, it's a feeling I really don't like. Sometimes... Either I've prepared wrongly or I haven't prepared enough or I've just judged the audience wrongly and I don't get it right, and I absolutely hate it. But you have found a lot of success. You've written many, many editions of certain books, and your shows have been quite popular. What's next for you? Oh, I don't know. Wouldn't mind going on holiday. <laughs> Take a little uh, break. <laughs> haven't had a holiday for two years. That would be nice. Uh, I've, this year, I've got three books coming out this year. Really? Yeah, I've got The Pocket Guide. I've also got a book... Which I've, which I've just written, just finished writing, which is uh, Sterling and Barnes and & Noble are bringing out, called The History of Wine in 100 Bottles. And what it really is, is 100 stories about wine I want to tell. Now, the bottle is the, is the sort of the excuse. But uh, some of the stories haven't got bottles in them at all. Sometimes they haven't invented the bottle. Sometimes it's about things with nothing to do with bottles, about you know the Nazis in, in the Second World War and their, what they did in Champagne and Bordeaux or what, what the First World War did to the Champagne trade or, or how designers and people created the bag-in-box phenomenon or all this kind of stuff. It's, it's a hundred stories. I want to tell about, about the world of wine from the first time you know, in the legends of the Tigris and the Euphrates, about how the hell, where did the first 
glass of wine ever come from? And I give up a few ideas as to how it would have happened. Right to, you know, the kind of shameful frauds and counterfeiting that's been going on in the last few years here. Uh, not here, it's all, all around the world. It's, so it's sort of like from infinity that way to 2015. Uh, and if, frankly, I could probably have written another 100 stories. I just chose 100 and told them. And when the um, 100... 100 Bottles book is, is out then in the autumn, in the fall. Uh, we've got the brand new edition of Grapes and Wines, which um, it has to be, every single page has been updated, a lot of it rewritten. All the statistics obviously completely different because things are completely different. Things move so fast nowadays. I'm still working on it at this minute. Um, you know, each week you think I've finished and then you check on the internet and new stuff comes in. And I think probably... End of next week, I'm going to have to say, that is it. We've got to put the guillotine down. And a week later, some other little fat will come in. But it's a really good book because I've, I've tried to write it in a humorous way, but it's got to be serious enough because it's a book I find in wineries all around the world. I was in Namibia a couple of years ago, and I walked into the only winery in Namibia, and there it was on the desk. It was fantastic. So wine, wine professionals have to want it. They all use it for their exams in, in Britain. But I also want members of the public to get this thing about grape varieties, to get where flavors come from, to get why it, why it matters. And for that, you have to, A, have the photographs and the graphics good. You've still got to find a way of writing about this. What can be a turgid subject, still got to look for the humor. Whenever there's a tiny little bit of humor, a little bit of lightness of touch, put it in. So that's one of my challenges is always to just make the damn thing readable. Is it different now reaching an audience in a world of social media, of apps, of connectedness? I think the social media revolution has dramatically changed the way people communicate. I think it means there's a real challenge for things like pocketbooks because we have a generation growing up, not just in wine, but in everything, who expect information to be free. And one just says, well, it, good information with, with attitude and with opinion can't be that free. Uh, someone's someone's had to, you know, work and earn that information. But people very frequently sort of say, "Well, I'll have less good information then, but I still want it free." Uh, I think when it comes to serious books, which are a bookish, and that's the hundred bottles story of hundred bottles is one, and the grapes and wines is another. You you sort of it, it matters to have that that piece of of paper and and binding in your hand. Uh, it looks, from what people can say, as though the market has bottomed out and is now beginning to bump slightly upwards. And I hope so, um, because social media is is a fantastic thing, and it's it's made millions and millions of people interconnected and alive, and and and, and having relationships and attitudes and activities which they might not have otherwise been able to do. Um, but it shouldn't exclude another side of communication as well. Any TV shows coming up? Well, <laughs> seeing James on Thursday, which is a pretty terrifying thought. And we've got, you know, a couple of series that we want to do. And I've got another series, which I'm probably going to be doing in Australia later this year. Six parters, a, a mixture of food, drink and railways at the moment. Railways, food and drink. I mean, you, you know, we don't have to drive. We just get on the train. Oz Clark, he took his name from the new world and his attitude also. Thank you very much for being here today. It's been great fun. Oz Clark of, uh, I don't know, many, many things. <laughs> many publications and many TV shows. Thank you. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. 
Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.